So beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are, are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, I want to start by asking a question. I wonder if you ever find yourself asking the question, what is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do? How does he want me to live? For the Christian, these are questions of crucial importance. For the non-Christian, uh, well, you may not often ponder the will of God, but I'm sure you're familiar with that nagging sense that the way you live is not the way you ought to live. You might phrase the question differently. You might ask, what does it look like to live well? How should I make the most of my life? These are questions which the text we're looking at tonight addresses. 
We've reached chapter 3 in our series on Colossians, and as we'll see, this passage is a pivot point in the letter as a whole. So uh, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul sought to address a form of false teaching that existed within the church at Colossae, um, and Paul's response to that teaching was to remind his listeners of the reality of salvation in Christ. And because of that, chapters 1 and 2 are shot through with references to the glory of God in the gospel. So let me give you just a few examples. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul prays that the Colossians would give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Later on, at verses 21 to 23 of chapter 1, Paul goes on to remind the Colossians that once you were alienated from God, enemies from God, so enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And just lastly, at chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, um, Paul reminds the Colossians when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charges of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. These are incredible, exalted truths. I mean, for, for the Christian, it's unspeakably wonderful to know uh, that our sins have been paid for, that we've been made righteousness, that we've been given new life by the death of Jesus on the cross. And when we think of these things, it, it's not hard to agree with uh, Dorothy Sayers, who wrote that the Christian gospel is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. But you don't have to go very far uh, as a Christian before you realize that the Christian life is not all drama and excitement. And even as we recognize these heavenly realities, we're confronted with that question. How, how do we live now? Because we're still part of the same broken world. We still sin and, and we still suffer. And it's easy to see how, in those conditions, the Colossians were tempted by the dishonest promises of false teachers. But Paul doesn't want us to take those false steps. He wants to teach us to faithfully apply the truths of the gospel in the ordinary, everyday of our lives. He wants to give us an idea of what the new person in Christ should look like, not just in glory, but uh, as they arrive in the office on a Monday morning, or how they are with their uh, kids after a long day, um, how they are with their friends and their enemies, how they rejoice, how they suffer, and in a thousand other situations that we encounter in everyday life. So with that in mind, um, I want to draw out four principles from this text, which I think uh, Paul insists that we need to practice if we're going to live according to God's purposes. The first principle is that we have to set our minds on things above, where the ruling Christ is. So in verse 1, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
What Paul is saying is that every day of our lives, we should live in the knowledge of the present, crucified, risen, and reigning Christ. He's saying that we mustn't consign Jesus to the subject matter of the sermons that we listen to on a Sunday morning or the songs that we sing. Um, but we should see every event in our lives from the perspective of Christ's invasion of the kingdom of darkness. And so Paul reminds us in these opening verses that Paul, uh, that, that's heretical, that's that Jesus has saved us, uh, that he's now seated at God's right hand, that, that he will return in glory, and that we will appear with him in glory then. And so Paul's insistence is that we have to be mindful of these things as we go through everyday life, uh, and we have to let them inform our decision-making. The reason for the need to be deliberate about this, um, I think, is that these, these are basic but hidden realities of our lives as Christians. Uh, so it's an obvious truth that in every area of life, you have to live uh, conscious of your surroundings. So it's a bit of a trite example, but if you're driving a car, you have to be mindful of what's going on around you if you're going to drive safely. Or if you're uh, playing football, you've got to look out for what the other players on the field are doing if you're going to be any use to your teammates. But what's, what's the environment of the Christian life? I think Paul would argue that the most essential realities of our lives are not visible but invisible. And I think he would say, before anything else, the defining realities of our lives as Christians are the presence and the power of God. So however things may appear, for any and every Christian, union with Christ reconciliation to God, those are the most basic, most fundamental facts of our existence. They're more fundamental to who we are than our sin or our suffering, our relationships or our work, um, or anything else. And so Paul calls us to focus our attention accordingly. Now, if we obey this command, it's bound to have a deep effect on our conduct. The more our focus is on Jesus, the more he will inform our daily goals. So imagine a young man uh, starting off on a walk across town to see a girl that he's dating. Uh, seeing her and spending the evening with her is uh, the goal of his walk. And as he walks across town, he can't get her out of his mind. And so passing a sweet shop, he uh, goes in and buys her a box of her favorite chocolates. Uh, and passing a flower shop, he's inspired, this is terribly cliche, I'm sorry for that, but passing a sweet sh uh, flower shop, he's inspired with the thought of how much she, she'd love a bunch of roses, and so he buys her some. And then passing old friends along uh, the streets, he's so taken up with thoughts of her uh, that he misses them completely. And the point is really that because his focus, his attention is on her along the journey, by the time he arrives at her door, we'll be able to identify half a dozen things that he did that he would not have done if his focus was not on her. And I think in the same way, if Jesus is the subject of our concerted and our idle thoughts, then as we move through life, we will do things for him that we would never have dreamt of doing before. We'll step out in faith and we'll behave in ways that can only be explained by the fact that we don't love what the world loves. We're not like everyone else. Now, the flip side of this principle um, is that I think it follows from what Paul says 
that if we don't deliberately focus on Christ, then we'll have nowhere to look except at the world around us and at the sinful natures that we have within us. And this is something that Paul expressly prohibits in verse 2. So he says, uh, we should not set our minds on things that are on earth. I don't think that's a geographical statement. So Paul's not saying, don't pay attention to what's going on around you. Um, But I think he is saying, don't give your attention and your energy uh, to the old sinful way of life uh, that you led and to the way of life that is still the way of this world. And I think that's confirmed by verse 5, because in verse 5, Paul equates what is earthly with what is sinful. So it's important that we're careful to follow this instruction, because if we don't and our focus uh, is on those earthly things, then we are bound to lose perspective in all sorts of ways. Uh, We'd be bound to live more for ourselves, and we'd lose any wider purpose that we had. We'd be bound to live more for the moment, and we'd have no confidence in an eternal future. We'd be driven by fear of judgment and not motivated by grace. So this principle is one key to living the Christian life well. But how do we follow this command? I think we can ask that question on two different levels. So there's a kind of uh, big picture level, which is, how is it that we as sinful, selfish people are enabled to follow this command? And then on another level, how do we actually go about doing it practically? So I want to try to address both of those questions. So first, how are we enabled to do this? I think the answer is in the condition right at the beginning of this chapter. So Paul's command is subject to the condition that his hearer has been raised with Christ. And so we do this as a consequence of having been given new life by Jesus. We look to him because we've been united to him and by his saving work on the cross. I think this is really key because... For Paul, the first word in any conversation about the Christian life always has to be about God and not about us, because as Christians, we're not ourselves by ourselves. We're participants in the saving work of Jesus. And when we fail to recognize this, when God and his saving work are taken out of the picture, then we'll be driven by sinful desires, by fear or by guilt. On some level, we'll be concerned with justifying ourselves before God and others. But that's not at all what Paul has in mind in Colossians 3. And actually, I really want to stress that, because if you go away from the sermon thinking that this was a talk on how to get right with God, this, this will have been a disaster. I mean, that, that's an exercise in completely missing the point. Um, Colossians 3 is not about how to get right with God, And Paul is absolutely clear uh, that we're powerless to atone for our sin uh, or to find peace with God. Instead, righteousness is the gift of God's grace paid for by Jesus on the cross. And it isn't contributed to at all by our own behavior. But instead, we behave in the way that Paul describes because as Christians, we've already been saved and we've already been given new life. And for Paul, these behaviors are the hallmarks of someone who has already been made right with God and who now lives to glorify the one who saved them. So that's a key point. We don't follow these principles to get right with God, but we are enabled to follow them because as Christians, we have already been made right with God and he has given us a new life 
and a desire to love him and honor him. Now, how do we go about doing this practically? Well, it's really a question of what we choose to think about. Are we prepared to get up in the morning and spend time in God's Word before we read the news or worry about the day ahead? Are we prepared to take time to meditate on God and His works throughout the day? If not, then we need to ask God for the desire and the discipline required to do these things. And I think at the same time as being about our uh, concentrated thoughts, this is also about our idle thoughts. So ask yourself, what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? If you're anything like me, you might daydream about your next holiday or retirement at the age of 28. Um, maybe you worry about the meeting in your diary that you just can't face or a deadline you know you're not going to meet. Um, but whatever it is, there's, there's nothing more worthy of our thoughts than Jesus. God is the most important reality in our lives and we must devote time to meditating on him. Now, before we move on, let me just tie this principle to verse 16. Because the greatest aid uh, available to us as we seek to set our minds on things above is God's word. And in verse 16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So if you've been challenged at all uh, to take your thoughts captive and set your minds on Christ, as, we've been, as I've been describing, then uh, I'd encourage you to think seriously about how to make more of God's Word in your daily life, both individually and uh, in community. So that's point one. Um, I promise I won't take as long on points two, three, and four. I sound like Robin. I regret saying that immediately. Um, having addressed our thought life in point one, Paul moves on to our conduct. So look with me again at verses 5 to 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In a sense, this is the negative side of Paul's vision of the Christian life. So before he tells us what to do, he reminds us what we must not do. Paul said in verse 3 that we have already died. He writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, in verse 5, he tells us uh, that as men and women who have already died to sin, we must keep dying. Ruthlessness is required here, but I think there's, there's reason to be encouraged. We know that the fatal blow has been struck already. We know, we know how the battle ends. Um, our sin has already been crucified on the cross. So as Robin loves to say, we should fight our sin not as victims, but as victors. To illustrate this point, Paul sets out two lists of vices, one connected with sexual sins in verse 5, 
and another connected to spoken sins in verses 8 and 9. These reflect two central areas of human life, both involving great potential for good and evil. But I think it would be a mistake uh, to think that Paul is only concerned with these specific issues. These are examples of all of the kinds of sins that we should be putting to death in our lives. And the way to deal with these practices is clear. There's to be no gentle, half-hearted approach to these things, no toying with them as continuing possibilities. They're like, they're like vermin that mustn't be allowed in the house in case they poison the water or the food supply. They're not to be pitied, they're to be killed off because they belong to the old man who has died. And let me just repeat uh, that this change isn't to be motivated by fear or guilt. Uh, this change should be an outworking of what has already been accomplished for us by Jesus. So in verse 5, Paul begins by saying, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That therefore is crucial. Because looking back at verses 1 to 4, Paul's logic is, because you have already been saved, you have already been given new life in Christ, because you will appear with him in glory, therefore, sin can have no continuing place in your life. You must kill it. Paul's third principle is, in a way, the mirror image of the second. Having put to death what belonged to the old man, we're called to put on the new self. So look with me at verses 9 to 17. Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think in this passage what, what we find is a, is a positive call to put on the new self, and to dress in clothing which demonstrates what we are within. None of us can look inside another person and develop and discern the development of thought in their mind or the change of emotions in their hearts. You've absolutely no idea what the person next to you is thinking. Uh, but that fact doesn't mean that we're consigned to ignorance, because we all have ways of finding out what's going on inside. We can see expressions on the face, uh, words spoken from the mouth, the manner of a walk, the clothes we choose to wear, uh, and any number of other things. In all of these ways, we each show 
what the internal realities of our lives are. And I think according to Paul's metaphor, Christians are called to do this by putting on a garment that reflects the reality of Christ within us. I think this is a key point in Colossians 3, because Paul has already said in verse 3 that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And that means no one can see it. The Christian and uh, the non-Christian look identical. Our new life is literally hidden elsewhere. And that's exactly why we're called to put on the garments of God's chosen people. And these garments include kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love, and many other qualities. Because these are the things that reveal the hidden reality of Jesus in our lives. Paul says this even more explicitly uh, in Romans. Um, There's a similar list to the one we're looking at in Romans 13. And at the conclusion of that list, Paul uh, exhorts his readers to clothe yourselves in Christ. Now, when I was preparing this, I could foresee a kind of objection to this uh, teaching. And the objection goes something like this. So, isn't it wrong to pretend in this way? Shouldn't we try to be true to ourselves? What's good about acting like someone we're not? Well, I find C.S. Lewis to be very helpful on this point because he uh, writes about how there are two ways to pretend. There's a bad way and there's a good way. There's pretense instead of reality, but there's also a kind of pretending that leads to new realities. So there's the pretense of a pickpocket who pretends to be someone he's not to put you at ease before nabbing your wallet. Um, But there's also the pretense of a child aspiring to take on the responsibilities of an adult, of of a a toddler playing with a fire truck and pretending to put out fires, uh, who one day becomes a firefighter, sacrificially putting his life at risk for the good of others. It's that second kind of uh, pretending or putting on that Paul's talking about. And so as God's children, we should all aspire to be like the one who saved us because we love him and we want to glorify him with our lives. One implication of this, I think, is that if we follow Paul's commandment, very often we'll behave in ways which are completely opposed to how we feel. Because these behaviors aren't the product of our own instincts or our own uh, leanings, but they reflect the hidden reality of Christ in us. And that means it may feel unnatural. It may feel awkward to do what this passage tells us to do. But I want to encourage you that we shouldn't worry if we feel like the the new clothes don't fit. Um, Because God has called us to do this, and uh, he he equips us to do what he calls us to do. I think it's... uh, also important to realize that what this looks like will differ from person to person. So the same themes will recur and everyone in Christ will learn compassion and humility. We'll all forgive as we've been forgiven. We'll all know the peace of Christ and put on love and practice gratitude. But exactly what this looks like when you arrive at work tomorrow morning will depend entirely on you and your situation. And so this is Paul's call. Work work out what it looks like in your life to display the hidden life of Christ in you. 
meditate on this passage, think creatively and carefully about how to display his beauty and goodness. Persevere. Even as you falter and stumble, persevere. And trust that his spirit is in you and will enable you to do this. Now, uh, the fourth principle is in verses 18 to 25, um, and it's that we ought to model Christ in our relationships. Um, There's a lot to consider here, but unfortunately, I think I don't have time to go into any detail at all. Um, Let me just stress that the underlying principle is the same as uh, what we've already seen. So this isn't just Paul saying, be good because that's what you should do or love others because that's the right thing to do. And yes, that's true, but there's, there's so much more depth in what Paul's saying. And the main thing for Paul is that just as we have been saved by Jesus, so we should uh, live out of and, and lean into that salvation and uh, reflect it in all of our relationships. Because just as living in light of the resurrected Christ can transform our conduct so it can transform the relationships that make up our lives. Now, let's return to our original questions. What is God's will for your life? What does a life well-lived look like? There's so much depth and nuance in this passage that we've hardly scratched the surface of Paul's answer. And I'd encourage you to spend some time in the coming days reflecting more on this text. For now, though, just let, let me just summarize what I think are Paul's key points. First, we have to sort out our motivations and our thought life. If you believe on any level that you need to sort out the way you behave uh, so that you'll be respected by others or accepted by God, um, You won't find any support for that in in this passage. Paul's message to you is that your behavior cannot save you from the sin in your heart. And before you can even hope to honor God with your behavior, you must be saved by Jesus. And this whole passage assumes that we have been given new life in Christ. But if that's not you, then I'd urge you to consider Christ and the sacrifice he made which underlies every word in this passage. Recognize the the beauty and the power of that sacrifice for you. Uh, And if you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard, then uh, grab me after the service or uh, speak to whoever is around you. But I think the point stands, Colossians 3 is not about how to get right with God. After that, the rule about how we should live based on Colossians 3 is that we should focus our sights on the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. We should strategize about ways to maximize our exposure to Jesus and his glory in everyday life. And then we should choose to live in the way that will best reflect outwardly the hidden reality of what he has done for us. Preparing this sermon, um, I've been so struck by how closely Paul connects our lives with Jesus' life. So right from the start of the text, we see that we've been saved by Jesus in the past, that our life is hid with Jesus in the present, that we'll be glorified with him in the future. And Paul says, for now, our call is simply to keep our eyes on him and to reflect 
what he has done and is doing in us with our lives. So look with me again at verse 17. Paul writes, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I've been so challenged by that verse this week, uh, thinking about how much of what I say and do is done in the name of Jesus, and how much of what I say and do is done in the name of David Nelson. But Paul's call is to turn our backs on the old man, to live in a way that reflects who we are as new men and women in Christ. So just to close, let me read you verse 11 again. Here, in God's kingdom, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is everything, and for each of you who believe, he is in you. So as we close, let's, let's pray for help to set our hearts on him and to live in a way that reflects his glory. Father, we praise you for the willing sacrifice of your son. We thank you that we who were dead in our sins have been made alive in Christ, that we've been united to him in his death and resurrection. Father, we pray for eyes to see these massive life-changing truths. Pray that you would so stagger us with the wonder of these truths that our hearts would sing for joy and our lives would be changed. Father, help us as we go into the next week to keep our eyes on these things and not to be preoccupied with the concerns of the world around us. We pray that you would help us, that you would teach us to live each day in a way which openly displays your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.